It's Moonraker. That was way too much effort for a Moonraker episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they certainly made a lot of effort for this film, wouldn't you say? Visual effects-wise, visual effects-wise, Henrik, Henrik, Henrik. They they sure did make a lot of effort to be as scientifically accurate as possible. Yes, like Albert R. Broccoli said, quote, we are not in this film science fiction, we are science fact. And And with that note, we are rolling into this episode. Yep. So, so to all our listeners, you can be most certainly, you can be absolutely sure that Broccoli's quote is not something that we will come back to repeatedly during, during this one. Hell no! Hell no! I'm Karri, I studied media, therefore I know what I speak and I know what I preach, you don't. My co-host is Henrik, he also studies art, so he is very educated as well for, to talk about films. He has a license to talk about films. You don't, dear listener. <laughs> Our guest is Tom Hello. Franklin. Tom Franklin. Hello. 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 Moika. Hello. 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 Okay, this is kind of retarded. <laughs> How's the weather in the lively old? It's actually really nice. It's raining now. I see. The precipitation levels are high. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know what that means. Really? Yeah, really. Oh my god. I need to study less English. (laughs) Uh, I kind of feel really retarded now. (laughs) (laughs) This is weird. That's the flick lap experience. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, we know what we preach. And it brings out your inner retard, this uh, podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right how's the cloud formation um gray kind of black mm, yeah and kind of white kind uh, of helsinki-ish mm. no no oh kind of like mordor Ooh, so kind of like helsinki in the summer hmm. covered by clouds all the time and how's the cloud formation there oh not so many clouds at the moment we can see a little blinking, blinking sun behind mm. the cloud. That's good. It's hot. Very nice. Mm. And uh, how do you think the cloud formation will be tomorrow? <laughs> I think it will be beautiful. Yeah. Like t- today, it's been very hor- warm. Yeah. You, <laughs> you, you sound way too happy and way too excited to actually be hosting this one, Carly. He's got schizophrenia now. Oh. <laughs> 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 well, of course I'm jolly. Weather has been awesome. Just like in Romaniemi. See, that's the sk- schizophrenia talking. <laughs> I think that's his inner retard talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And and listeners who are hearing hearing about schizophrenia must be really confused, and I feel very offended, guys. Like, how dare you? How dare you? Yeah, it, it, it's not a nice thing to call retarded people schizophrenics. Uh, but yeah. Tom, yeah. Tom, more more about the cloud formations. 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm looking out the window now, and it's kind of misty. Okay. Oh. There's kind of a low, kind of a low carpet of mist, which is hovering slightly above the ground. And if I oh. look at the sky, I can see black. I can see grey and white. What? What do you think? Is it floating above a Boris Johnson at the moment? <laughs> oh well, my God, Corey. This is not a political podcast. Oh, no, 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 no. Heavens. And, no. and, 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 and that's not a fair trap to actually give to a, to a British guest. I've kind of made enough enemies on this podcast without going into politics. <laughs> so, many of your friends joining. That's good. Uh, no, not really, no. Although, I've, oh. <laughs> although I try. It's a futile effort, I've noticed. Yeah. yeah. But more about the cloud formations. Okay. <laughs> well, um, hmm. Well, shall I talk about the sound of the sound that the rain's making? Please, live from England. Did you have an instrument as a child? You know, in school, it's kind of like a cylinder, and you tip it to one side, and it gives a sound effect of rain. No. Okay. Well, okay. You don't know it, which kind of fucks up my whole floor. Okay. It's. Uh, I'm sorry, Carrie. I, I'm trying really hard to think about stuff to say about the clouds and the, and the weather. So you tell me what what's going on over there. Oh, well, there was the, this fancy stuff was in the air yesterday. We had some precipitation levels going high. Okay. And at, at the moment it's quite um, comfortable summer weather. I would say around uh, 50% pre- precipi- precipitation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, okay. I just went to kiosk. I had some juice. That was really exciting. And how was the weather? Um, 25 degrees. Okay. That's moderately that's... hot. I saw some people there. Yeah. It was a bit scary. I just wanted to get an orange juice in peace. Polish people? Yeah, there was one Asian guy, I believe. Ooh, spicy. Maybe, maybe that's racist to say nowadays. I, I really can't say, of course. Maybe he was Polish. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But more about the precipitation. Or the cloud formation. Well, it's really nice to have, to have a break from this just exhausting heat that's been going on for weeks, two mm. weeks. It's just I felt like I was dying. I was dehydrated. It's just, yep. it's just it just has a real draining effect. Does the heat and it, and it's so nice to just to hear the sound of rain, just the refreshing, refreshing aspect of the precipitation. Oh, that's so romantic like i can see you in slow motion outside like enjoying the precipitation hitting your face basically is that, is is um, henrik still here <laughs> i am i'm i'm still trying to understand what the hell is going on with this conversation <laughs> <laughs> okay this this is not working <laughs> what were you even trying <laughs> like please i'm i'm begging you explain me your intentions <laughs> uh, basically, we were wishing for you to make like ham-fisted bridges into the tonight's film and trying to stop it with all of our might, but uh, it's not forthcoming. Maybe we just have to bite the bullet and carry on. <laughs> yeah, but now when this podcast goes online, the listener has to endure fifty minutes of just babble about precipitation. I know, right? It's it's nothing new for our, our listeners. <laughs> they, they, they have had to suffer through worse. 
Okay. Moonraker. <laughs> In fact, can I just say that now? I feel even more retarded. For? The precipitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you just have to carry on like a man. Mm. She's the man. It's the biggerest. It's the bestestest. It's Moonraker. It's out of this world. Yeah. So, yeah. We have Tom, hello, I just crashed, Frankland. The man with the golden rake. Nailing the theme songs. Did I just crash? No, you didn't. Oh, you told me I crashed. Yeah, because you're Tom, the, oh, I just crashed, Frankland. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I get it now. I'm sorry, that's really, really low. I didn't realize I had a reputation for crashing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's... <laughs> Check some history and background of the film. Yes, finally. Please, let's do that. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about the Eon Productions, sort of an officialish series. And the series starts, once again, with 62 Dr. No, with the Sean Connery, who is extremely sexy, by the way. And then we continue with 63 from Russia with Love. He's still sexy. And 64, Goldfinger. <laughs> which kind of established the whole franchise. Then we get to 65. In Thunderball, we are underwater way too much. Then we get to You Only Live Twice. It's from 67. It's uh, Sean Connery's last film before he uh, makes another one. In between, we check out some George Lazenby, 1969, with Telly Savalas in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Well, I'm waiting for the boo, boo, boo. Boo, boo. There you go. And then we get to 1971 in Diamonds Are Forever. Sean Connery comes back for one last movie because he got one million dollars. And that was incredible salary at the time. And in 1973, Roger Moore is introducing himself as James Bond. Much more Roger Moore as Live and Let Die. Then we get to 74, The Man with the Golden Gun. Then we get to 77 with The Spy Who Loved Me which we covered as the last episode in this podcast. And now we're going to tackle with the follow-up, also directed by Louis Gilbert. Moonraker, welcome. Yeah, so in, in case our listeners don't remember what is our gimmick this time, it is to go through each Bond and look one good and one bad film for for each one of them. Yes. In, in some cases, this is going to be a bit uneven, like with Lazenby and later on with Dalton, but Yet, uh, previously we watched a film that is being considered good from Roger Moore's James Bond, and today we are... Well, today it's Moonraker. (laughs) So draw your own conclusions. So, the way that we did this, we voted amongst ourselves. Sorry, listeners, we didn't listen to your recommendations this time, but... um, We don't need you. We don't need you, stinking you. Yeah. We just want your money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just joking. Really? Um, so we did check out which films we consider as the best of one actor and which we consider as the worst, like Henrik just said. So basically repeating, like a parrot. But we did go through From Russia with Love, which we kind of considered Sean Connery's best. We're still going to get to the worst, which will be Never Say Never Again. And George Lazenby did only one Bond film, so we covered that already. It was his best and worst at the same time. And The Spy Who Loved Me was the best from Roger Moore. And now we're here at the, well, Moonraker. And um, this film actually was almost going to be made in the 50s. 
1955, there was American actor John Payne who offered $1,000 for a nine-month option for Moonraker from Ian Fleming, and uh, plus 10000 if production eventually uh, took off, no pun intended. But that didn't materialize, and Ian Fleming bought the rights back, and then later Ian Productions got the rights, and so on and so forth. And as you saw in The Spy Who Loved Me, guys, that we checked out the last time, in the end credits you can see that the producers intended to film for your eyes only now, but because something like this little thing called Star Wars happened in 1977, of of course, (laughs) the Bond franchise jumped on the opportunity and did Moonraker. Yeah, Yeah, not, not only Star Wars, another film to actually blame for Moonraker would be also Steven Spielberg's The Encounters of the Third Kind. That and Star Wars kind of led into this reawakening of sci-fi cinema in in the America and Broccoli immediately wanted to jump the gun. Yeah, well, it spawned always following the current trends, which seems to keep the franchise alive. We can look at the box office records of this film later, but it was indeed the biggest box office success for the franchise at that time. Budgetary issues caused this film to be primarily shot in France, and some locations were also filmed in Italy, Brazil, Guatemala and the United States. This is also noted for its extremely high production cost at the time. As we noted in the previous episode, The Spy Who Loved Me was in the ballpark of $14 million. This one is $34 million production. And it is actually so huge that they took over four different studios in two different countries to make this film. So they basically took control of all the major studios in Paris, which didn't make them too popular in the film stratosphere uh Karen, you just crashed i think oh did i because you kind of just cut off did i yeah so the cost of the film is more than six of the first 007 films from dr no onwards combined welcome to that the obscene amount of 34 million in total yeah as the production budget which kind of shows you exactly how cheaply the previous six films were in in the end made. Well, I guess that's subjective. Everyone can check how much 34 million in 1979 is inflation adjusted to your current moment of listening to this episode. The book Moonraker has basically nothing to do with tonight's film. <laughs> well, it, it, it does share the title. It has Moonraker and Hugo Drax, and that's about it. Moonraker originally was like a film manuscript, but it didn't go anywhere, and then he produced it into a book, Moonraker, which was a very successful book, I might add. And in this book, the plot goes something like this, that Hugo Drax is a Nazi, nobody knows that, and he lives in London, he's a multimillionaire, he owns Moonraker stuff, and he plans to destroy London with said Moonraker by launching it on London. And it's an exceptional book in Ian Fleming's Bond series, in the sense that it takes place basically only in London. So no fancy traveling in that one. So you can see why Albert R. Broccoli 
thought that after they filmed The Spy Who Loved Me, with basically their completely own script because they were not allowed to use The Spy Who Loved Me, the book as a basis, they are now kind of high and they think that they can pull this off with just their own, you know, plot, which is what they did, which is actually the same plot of The Spy Who Loved Me. So once again, we have a megalomaniac, millionaire, billionaire guy who wants to destroy the world, this time from space. Is his name Boris Johnson? <laughs> that's, that's the henchman of the unreleased version. There's some connections with Die Another Day, Bond film, and this one. There are some ideas and character names from Moonraker, the book, that are used in Die Another Day. Also, if you, if you check out the glass shop scene, well, you see some, one of those spears, and it's the, exactly the same. Moonraker, the book, is the third novel by Ian Fleming. Then there is uh, book number two, based on the film. Like in the previous film, The Spy Who Loved Me, there was a book created by the screenwriter Christopher Wood, and it's the same thing here. Except, except, when he wrote The Spy Who Loved Me, that was more of an original work. There were some plot points that were not in the film. But here it's basically the same thing as the film, with some small differences. And it is the last Eon Productions uh, approved novelization of a film until License to Kill in 1989. Cast and crew, we have Roger Moore. Much more. <laughs> as James Bond. <laughs> it, it, it appears that even Connery is grown tired of his own joke at this point. <laughs> Don't count on it. <laughs> oh my god. Why did I open my mouth? <laughs> Roger Moore. Roger Moore. <laughs> Sir, much more. Is known for The Saint and what is it? Bond, I think? Yeah, that one pretty short lived series of films. We're kind of an India production. And Saint and Bond. James Bond. Guess we're moving on from that. Then we have Michael Lonsdale. Michael Lonsdale, he's Hugo Drugs in this film. This role was supposed to be played by a British actor first, called James Mason. But they made the decision to do a Anglo-French co-production. And under the 1965-79 to 79 film treaty, they have to have French actors. Hence, Lonsdale. We also have Corinne Clary who was chosen for the role of Corinne Dufour to comply with the said agreement. Stuart Granger and Louis Jordan were also considered for the role of Drax Henrik, and Gilbert had done two films in France, and he knew some technicians, and he's the one who picked up Lonsdale on his radar. That's the guy I want as my baddie. In the book, Hugo Drax is considerably more more much much more enigmatic or or con kind of a more cartoonish character he has a lot of scars in his face anything to note about Lonsdale further uh, from the cast of this film outside of Roger Moore Lonsdale is most likely the most qualified or the most well-known actor and the one that has I would say in merits has outacted even Roger Moore himself. Man who has appeared in 
for example, Steven Spielberg's Munich, the 1998 heist thriller Ronin, and in many of the beloved old cinema classics like Day of the Jackal, The Chariots of Fire, and also has acted twice with Anthony Hopkins. The more well-known of these collaborations being The Remains of the Day, but also with the Nazi biopic Punker. There you go, the solid knowledge of my co-host. All in all, Lawrence Dale is, is an actor who is... You, you can be relatively sure that he gives you the right kind of performance for the film that you are aiming to do. So if you catch Lonsdale's name in the back cover of a, any film, you can kind of count on that no matter how good or bad the film itself is going to be, Lonsdale is not the shortest straw. For sure. Then we have Lois Childs. Ooh! Well, she looks nice though, right? She Lois Childs was gotten to this project by a chance because the director Louis Gilbert was on a plane and who was sitting next to him while it was Louis Giles. And uh, she's an American, kind of different to other Bond girls. And uh, Christopher Wood came up with the name Holly Goodhead for her. He thought it was very Fleming-esque. Yeah, it's actually Dr. Goodhead, this name. But the actor has said that she kind of likes that she has had one of the most obscene names in the series. She was considered for the role of Anya Amasova in The Spy Who Loved Me, but it turned out that she was at the time having a little bit of a break from acting, so she didn't take the part. Jacqueline Smith was also offered the role, but she turned it down because of scheduling conflicts with Charlie's Angels. Then we have Richard Keel. And we covered Richard Gill in the last episode, but just to add about the character, Jaws was intended to be a villain against Bond until the bitter end, but Louis Gilbert got information from his grandson after a test screening that he wants Jaws to be a goodie, not a baddie. And also a lot of fan mail was sent that said basically the same thing. And lo and behold, we have a good Jaws at the end. Yeah, but the case with Jaws, and I was kind of saving this one for the later parts of the episode to wind it in there, but, you know, if we are going to tackle it right out the gate at the beginning, the the Jaws deal that happens in Moonraker is that Jaws, when he was first introduced in The Spy Who Loved Me, he tested extremely well with children. Altogether, he became children's favorite from the characters of that film. And the major gripe, like Curry pointed out, with the children was that the children were wondering why on earth Jaws can't be a good guy. And oh boy, does that come to bite us all in the ass here today in Moonraker. Bite being a very fitting word here. One question, Henrik, why are children watching James Bond films? Well, why wouldn't they? Like, like Be- I, I, I know, I know, I know that it, it was more of an issue back, back in the day. Yeah. Because, because, because VHS was not yet openly there. It was not the major thing, and these were more living through the theatrical release. Much more. Yup. 
But then again, you know, our <laughs> first introduction to Bond also happened in early childhood. That is why the franchise altogether is so beloved to us. I mean, I, I watched James Bond as a child, and I'm perfectly fine. Yeah, look what kind of a fuck-ups we came. We're doing a film podcast about this film today. But but in, in the kid, Brad's defense, I, I can also sympathize with their their need to have a choice to be a good guy, because that was also a sentiment that I shared when I first time saw The Spy Who Loved Me as a kid who didn't know any better, and who even today is sorry for, for also wishing that Jaws would be a good guy. Because now that I'm watching what ended up happening as a much older person, I can see what horrible mistake it was. As noted in the previous Bond episode, I did say that my sisters were also big fans of Jaws' character. And whenever they wanted to watch anything Bond, it was definitely only the spy who loved me or Moonraker. No, nothing else. Only because of Jaws. For the spy who loved me, they actually, this I didn't mention in the last episode, they shot two different endings. There was one where Jaws is kind of okay, and I suppose the other one is where he's less okay. But they kept the option to make Jaws appear in the sequel. Here we are. Then we also have Blanche Ravalets, or however you pronounce that. It's a French actress, has played in Michel Lang's Holiday Hotel, 1978, Claude Sautet's film, A Simple Story from 1978. And this is the Dolly, the girlfriend of Jaws. And originally the, the producers didn't know if they should cast her because of their huge height difference, and if it would be accepted by the audience. But then Richard Gill said that his real-life wife was of the same height, so no issue remained after that. Then we have Toshiro Suga. It's a Drax's henchman called Chang, played by Toshiro Suga. Well, he's an asshole. He's a real annoying ass. <laughs> that came from the heart. Um, I have to clarify, I'm not speaking about the actor, just the character. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounded like you were talking about the actor. It came such of a straight note. <laughs> and uh, Toshiro Suga, he was the instructor of Japanese Aikido for the executive producer Michael G. Wilson, the stepson of Albert R. Broccoli, the producer. Then we have perfect human specimens. We have L- Louis Maxwell. Mac- Louis, <laughs> Louis Maxwell's 22-year-old daughter, Melinda Maxwell, as one of the perfect human specimens, reproducing once returned to destroyed Earth. Writer is Christopher Wood, like in The Spy Who Loved Me. Editor is John Glenn, who would direct all the Bond films of the 80s. Director is Louis Gilbert, like The Spy Who Loved Me. Cinematographer was first Claude Renoir, like in The Spy Who Loved Me. He actually did film... The the documentary like shots of the Rio Parade, which they did shoot approximately one year before they started production on Moonraker. Claude Renoir did the cinematography for those, but then he completely lost his eyesight to the point that they had to come up with some other cinematographer, also a Frenchy, a French focus focus puller at that time, Jean Tournier. Are you okay, Carrie? <laughs> Why? Because you keep 
<laughs> mispronouncing words. Do, really? Yeah. <laughs> what did I do? I don't know. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Jean Tournier. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Maybe Tom Franklin is better in French. Uh, no. Okay. So stop commenting on my pronunciation. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so... Jean Tournier, Jean Tournier is the cinematographer also known for The Day of the Jackal. And maybe Henrik knows more about Jean Tournier. I unfortunately am drawing a blank here. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm failing you, Gary, as hard as this movie is failing science. <laughs> yeah, it makes Henrik look moderately human still. Ah, then I'm glad. Known for The Day of the Jackal, also Target... Target is um, Arthur Penn directed film starring uh, Gene Hackman and uh, The Train from 1964, directed by John Frankenheimer and Arthur Penn. Okay, anything else or scene by scene? Scene by scene, if you ask me. Okay, let's unleash the beast. Pre-title sequence! We start with Gun Barrel. Like some Bond films, the score for Moonraker has never received an extended release, and that is because of the loss of the original Session Masters, which have been lost by franchise. God damn it. Shuttle ignition. Just trust the RIF, sir. One of the best lines. <laughs> and what happens right after that? Takes less than a minute when Benoit Ferreux, who plays one of the guys, is one of the co-stealers of the Moonraker in mid-air. It's the younger-looking guy. He played the re- lead role in a French production called Dearest Love, or Le Souffle-Cœur, from 1971. His introductory film, where he plays a boy who is infatuated by his mother. Henrik, have you seen it? No, but it already sounds like a French film. Well, yes. Very questionable sexual appetite in this film. But... Guys, why does the UK need to loan a space shuttle from NASA? Because UK doesn't have any space program. Well... Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I would also have to ask that if the shuttle is simply transporting the, the spacecraft, in that case, why on Earth would you actually have fueled the said spacecraft since... The only thing that uh, that actually would do would make it easier to hijack and also make it heavier to transport. Yeah, the models are very cute, Henrik. But is this really how it happens in real life that you just transport it in top of a 747? That looks pretty honky <laughs> to me, but <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> well, have you ever transported a space shuttle? Yes, actually yesterday. But, uh, well, in that case, you know, I, I can't question your scientific facts here. I, I myself, I haven't made such a feat in my life, so I, I simply have to go with, with the facts and say that you do that simply because it's the most logical thing to do. Most certainly. So, another point I would like to draw on this, like, factually speaking. How does this work? You do a shuttle ignition in mid-air above an aircraft and 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 where do you fly this thing how is it powered it's not on a place where you launch shuttles and it's just self shuttles itself somewhere space 
or drags a space like a conventional aircraft. Really? I, 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 I guess they just landed it into that weird Mayan temple where Drax has his hideout at the end of the film, and the radar system simply failed to pick it up, because that's how radar systems work. Or was it actually mentioned when uh, Bond meets Dr. Holly Goodhead that it can be flown by like any other conventional aircraft? Or was that something else? Maybe uh-huh. we will get to that. We, we have to get that back to that when we actually visit, revisit the scene. But like I said, very science fact. I- extremely. And not at all like in the previous film where also the bad guys hijacked it. Well, in that case it was the submarine and in here it's a space shuttle. Yes, Henrik. Yes. This is very tasty, because there's so many similarities between this film and The Spy Who Loved Me. For example, to, to start off, both Jurgens and Lonsdale speak many, many languages. Well, it's just, it's not about the characters, but hear me out here, guys. Both of them have no playful chemistry with Bond. Both like beautiful ladies in their quarters. Most notably, both are one of the richest men on the face of the earth. Especially drugs. Especially. Both want to build a human master race. Both want to destroy the world to create a world. Or whatever. Both films have a stealing of a vehicle which launches investigation. Both have an agent that gets captured so that Bond can save them. Both leading ladies are smart ladies that look uncomfortable and not believable when they fall for Bond. Both have the first henchman killed. There's Sundor in the Spy, and then, then we have Chang here. Both have borrowed music. The Spy Who Loved Me has Zhivako and Lawrence of Arabia. Moorenraker has like five tunes. Close Encounters of the Third Kind is most notable. Both have a lot of classical music indeed. Both have the same drinking man actor looking at his bottle when he sees something funny. Same director, same jaws, same Bond having sex publicly ending. Both villains, as you mentioned, filthy rich. Both end with a war, an explosion of the villain's lair. Both villains get shot, and there's a jump from Mount Asgard, and there's a jump from an airplane. Did I miss something? Well, you did miss the next scene that plays right after the subtle haste here. Yeah, tell him to pull out. Yeah, which is the am getting the phone call and walking to Moneypenny asking where 007 is, which is almost shot to shot from The Spy Who Loved Me. If you watch them like back to back, it's almost identical. We could make a synced version of The Spy and Moonraker and watch this back to back. Moonraker just has the inferior cinematography, I'm sorry. You know, something tells me Corey doesn't like this film. (laughs) Where did you get that idea? We have only started here. Come on. You are wrong. Oh. Spicy. So we get to enjoy our flight. I'll never fly with anyone else. You're so right, Mr. Bond. This is where we leave you, Mr. Bond. A little premature, isn't it? Yeah. Bond is mooching a lady who turns out to be a bad guy and sets a trap for Bond. Bad guy? Haven't seen that one since the previous film, where it happened with the Ruskies. What happens to the woman? She disappears completely. I suppose she's just the last to jump from the airplane, but we never see her after this uh, pilot jumps from the plane. 
I guess what happens is that she gets transformed into Jaws, who now ma- mystically <laughs> appears inside the airplane to push Bond off the plane. Mystery solved. Thank you. Science fact. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Wilson had the idea of an opera should jump and BJ Worth was a world champion of these kind of jumps. Is one of the jumpers and um, there was a number of problems creating this scene. Problem of hiding the parachutes, also the problem of heavy lenses, Henrik and Tom. So Michael Wilson went to a second-hand shop in Paris and found a plastic lens. And he was really interested about this experimental model, which was never used. He took it, bought it, they further modified it to have a chromium body to make it extremely lightweight so that the parachute jumpers would not break their neck when they're carrying in their helmet this pretty heavy lenses and they had to be wide Panavision lenses, mind you. So for this, this scene is quite incredible, technically. It is, and taking into consideration that the stunt really is being done in the air, like what happens that the fight when Bond fights the henchman for the parachute, that really is two stuntmen doing the acrobatics while on free fall. It, it is really quite magnificent when you think about it. Like that is really great stunt work. It is, and it took 88 jumps to make this happen. And they did take like three second uh, takes or cuts when they were in the air for each jump so it took quite a while to get this all together fortunately it all comes together pretty great for example when you put richard keel and roger moore in this scene you can hardly it's not uncomfortable to watch it kind of blends in pretty well and the stunt actors kind of look like the actors themselves so that's all good there are few there are some moments in the aerial stunt where you actually, even I noticed that, hey, wait a minute, that guy is a stunt double. VHS Master Race, Henrik. Yeah, VHS saves a lot with this film. If you have the chance to actually visit it in a VHS format with the Blu-ray that I used, it comes even the more obvious where they are using the stunt doubles. But even with that in mind... Yeah, the switches between the real actors and the stunt doubles is done quite well, still, even even with my nitpick. The biggest problem that I saw in this scene was that you can see the parachutes under the clothes, I'm afraid. When the clothes kind of are floating in the air, you can see that there is something under the suit. They didn't hide it that well, even with ADA jumps. Then again, my biggest problem with the scene is the way how it ends with Jaws surviving the fall. Yes. Actually, I did check out some scientific papers related to Moonraker and how it has been executed here. There was some guy who was pondering that it might be even possible to survive a fall if you fall on you know, fall onto a tent. A circus tent. Well, but. actually, I did some math behind the scenes and, and did some calculations. Ooh. So, what I gathered with the teeth implants that Source has, 
And w- with his body type, I I would reckon that he weighs over 300 pounds in total, the man. And with that, with the fall, when you start to calculate the terminal velocity of how fast jaws would be dropping, I ended up into somewhere like 163 meters per second. It would be something like 72. So pretty damn fast. And with that in mind, I, I my take on the subject of Jaws surviving would be that, un- unlike in the article that you pointed out where, where it was mentioned that people have survived pretty crazy parachuting accidents by hitting, for example, cables or rooftops or something like that. In both of those cases, there has been the fact that the element that they have hit is something that is pretty hard, but still in the way that it stretches a bit. Like it gives away a little bit, so it's not exactly, it's not 100% hard surface that you hit. It's something that gives in a little, but it's also a solid obstacle in a way that it actually does stop your fall. But that's not the case with a goddamn circus tent, which is a material that simply gives in and simply stretches, but it's not solid enough to actually break your fall. Are and you nitpicking in this I'm, podcast? I'm using fantasy instead of science facts, unlike Broccoli here. And Are you actually challenging the sort of a quote-unquote main host's stance? I most definitely am. I, I, I'm coming from the Tolkien University of Physics here. Oh, I did read that Jaws just landed on the elephant. (laughs) (laughs) That explains everything. Well, I I didn't take that into account in my calculations. (laughs) Title sequence. During this, the first track from the album plays Moonraker title theme. Hal David has written the lyrics for this. He also did write the lyrics for We Have All the Time in the World for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Boo! (laughs) Boo for yourself! (laughs) Moonraker was the third of three Bond films where Shirley Bassey is doing the title song. The others were Goldfinger <laughs> and Diamonds Are Forever. Frank Sinatra was originally considered, but he didn't do this song. And Kate Bush was asked. She declined. Johnny Mathis was already doing the title song, but then he realized that he didn't like the song too much. So he passed the reins to Bassey, who had like week or two to finish the song before the premiere, but they pulled it through. Unfortunately, because of this tight scheduling, Bassie never felt that this song was her own and never had time to market it before it released. There's also a disco version of this song in the closing titles. And if I've understood correctly, that sentiment hasn't left Bassie even today, meaning that she still refuses to actually really promote the Moonraker theme and mostly just prefers not to talk about it and not to sing it. She has performed it in her later years. She played it after a, like basically not playing it ever. And I guess she has grown to like it, but yeah, it was basically done by John Barry in, in advance completely. So the opening titles... 
the opening titles are more expensive than Doctor No in total. How do you feel about the opening titles? Kind of lame, to be honest. I'm I'm not a fan of the song. I'm not. Once again, I'm not the biggest fan of the more simplistic visuals of these older Bond films. I, I like more of my my communist symbols and explosions like in Golden Eye. But I can appreciate the fact that with these opening titles you can still play the game of trying to count exactly how many silhouettes of nipples they have sneaked in and still get gotten a PG rating. There are several problems with these titles. They keep repeating one lady layer twice. They have something that just quite doesn't work. There's a lady that is cut into two pieces basically by a light. It's red and blue on one side and then turns into blue and it's kind of random and I didn't like that. I also hated that moment. Oh yeah, okay. I do enjoy the one where you have like on the top of the ball you have the silhouette of a girl sitting on top of it. That was cool. I don't understand. I realize this is an old film but I don't understand why also in Moonraker you have shots in the title sequence where the frame is still and then later you let it go into motion. Why can't you just keep it in motion all the time? Like it it reeks of being in a hurry with your takes. Or then it's an artistic callback to that one pigeon you see later on in the Venice scene. Oh. Also done with, you know, stopping the image and recutting it to repeat it. Isn't that the pigeon double take done in the way that you see it first, like maybe the original shot and then you see it mirrored? I hate that. I I also hated it. That, That is why I'm pointing it out right here. In this to, podcast, you mean? And I'm trying to defend the opening titles by using that goddamn pigeon. More about the soundtrack. I I kind of like this song, but for example for Shirley Bassey, it's a really lazy tune and it doesn't bring the best out of Shirley Bassey. There is this one moment where she goes, yeah! But other than that, it's kind of lacking energy and so is the entire soundtrack. I mean... It's a great soundtrack, it's beautiful, but it's not fitting for a Bond film, because it's always slow and very... It doesn't have, like, this sense of urgency to it, ever. It's very slow, and you. it's the best soundtrack to fall asleep to. Then again, in, in everybody's defense, they are essentially trying to make a, make a song about loving a moonraker. Well, you beat me. Mr. Franklin, any thoughts on Moonraker title sequence? You know, I thought it was really fantastic. <laughs> I I was kind of expecting that notion. It's really, really catchy. And and whenever I listen, it just really evokes memories of childhood. You know, it gives me a deep sense of... Well, pain. yeah. It's a cool song, but... Um, oh, kind of like you, kind of... you just said the exact opposite. <laughs> No, I didn't. I mean, it's not not fitting for a Bond film, I feel. Okay, so we move on to M's office, and the Bond gets information that this Moonraker has been hijacked in mid-air. Anything about that scene? I, I kind of love how Bond simply arses around in, the, in M's office, and then just walks away without asking any questions or 
even any details considering his mission. He's being given the rough cut of the situation that there has been an aerial hijack of the Moonraker shuttle and then Bond is simply, well, that is all for me, good sirs, and walks straight out of the office door. With a smile on his face. W- with a smile on his face to do some James Bond stuff. Yeah, James Bond doesn't give a fuck about the Moonraker. You can see that he... Whenever he's giving this assignment and he just, he's just smiling. Oh, drugs and Moonraker stole it. Good. <laughs> I have some stuff to do here. And he gets this uh, wristband thing that is activated by nerve impulses to shoot darts. A shooting is something that can break mechanical equipment. And shoots it into a horse's ass. He didn't yes. shoot it into a horse's ass. A painting of a horse's ass. <laughs> <laughs> It's good that we are clear in this scientific podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm giving the listeners what they want to hear, you know, all the facts and the science. Perfect. You it... don't have to do that. The film does all that for you. <laughs> science fact, yeah. It's nothing but logic here on the Flick Lab. <laughs> <laughs> we get to Los Angeles, or how do you pronounce that, Tom Franklin? Some say Los Angeles and some say Los Angeles. I'm really angered by that. Which one is it? Los Angeles. Okay, I'm now even more confused. Uh-huh. Oh, you could say LA. Yeah, LA. We get to LA airport where this scene is shot, but this is basically taking place in Cali- California, man. Yeah. And Bond boards the helicopter, which is controlled by Corinne Dufour. Off they go to look from high air into some matte paintings of a chateau. Did you notice, guys, that it's a matte painting that they're looking at when Bond says, good God? No. I kind of did, and I kind of thought that the matte paintings were worse than they were in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Excuse me, the scientific podcast, he says, good Lord, not good God. They fly, they land. Before landing, there is this weird face of much more, where he looks concerned just before they land. I will... Give it a time, God. Before they landed, they flew. <laughs> they they flew, and it is at thirteen fifty-five. It's a weird cut. He gives a quick glance at Corinne Dufour and looks very concerned, like this pilot is going to fuck up the landing. I, I was my take was that Bond Bond simply noticed the quality of the map paintings, and that's why he's concerned. <laughs> He was afraid he was going to land on a matte painting. I see. (laughs) And so they are in the chateau. This is a serious podcast. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So Drax's mansion. It's a chateau de Vaux-le-Vicomte or something like that. 55 kilometers from Paris. And don't forget that he tried to purchase the Eiffel Tower. Yes, thank you. I wanted to mention it in this podcast. So Hugo Drax owns the Eiffel Tower, just so if you were wondering. But the French government refused him an export permit. Yeah, and this chateau right here was moved from France to California, piece by piece. Believe it or not, I choose to not believe. I mean, you have to be pretty arrogant to try to buy the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, or just a fan of Eiffel Tower. Wouldn't you want the Eiffel Tower in your backyard? I would. No, no, I, no I wouldn't. No, no. I, I wouldn't touch that one. I would touch it. Mm. 
But there they are, talking about Oscar Wilde, how he would have put the Moonraker disappearance. One would be Can an I accident and... Yes, sir. Please repeat. I said, can I try quote him? Yes. Okay, here we go. To lose one spacecraft seems <laughs> to be unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> to lose two seems like a... To, to lose two seems like carelessness. Yeah. Okay, I'm feeling even more retarded than I did when I felt even more retarded. Franklin, much more. More. Roger more. But but speak, speaking up about all, all the touching... Did you guys actually notice that someone who does not do any touching is tracks when he's trying to pretend that he's playing the goddamn piano? Oh, oh god. There, 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 is, there is really obvious, obvious close-up on his hands which show you that he's yeah. not actually pushing the keys. Yeah, it's a D-flat major song, Chopin's Prelude of the Raindrops, but he plays it in... D major for whatever reason. But you can see that he's not playing it. However, I know that Michael Lonsdale is a very smart man. He probably plays piano very well. But I was kind of surprised, actually, that he's not playing the piano. At least it's not going in sync in this scene. Sad. I I, I, I was also. I, I took it, since, since the movie highlights this, since it shows you his hands not touching the keys, I took it that the movie tries to do this on... Uh, on purpose? Yeah, on purpose. To highlight you how Drax is a bad guy and most likely also plays Golden Eye as old job. Golden Eye. The goddamn bastard. Golden Raker. Not less or letter. Golden change. See his reflection on the water. Moonraker never dies. Moonraker sigh. <laughs> Where were we? I don't know. I, I mm. guess we are the, in, in the tea scene. Where Dra- Dra- yes. Makes the no, no notion of UK's, which is a former colonialist superpower, contributions for the world while he's being served by a Japanese servant. Who's a fucking asshole. <laughs> Who is a fucking asshole? You have arrived at the propitious moment. Go inside and with your country's one indisputable contribution to the Western civilization. Afternoon tea. And may I press you to a cucumber sandwich. The best line of the film. <laughs> really? So absurd. Yes. This was highlighted by another podcast. It's so funny. Like a main bad guy of this film is pressing more, much more for a cucumber sandwich. <laughs> he refuses. Bond never eats. Because he doesn't eat meat. Which cucumber obviously is. <laughs> Can we start over? What is going on in this podcast today? I, I, I don't know, but somehow these recording sessions always are more fun when Frank, when Tom is joining us. <laughs> <laughs> but so it seems that Mr. Bond is eager to start his tour. And finally meets with, with the Dr. Goodhead. Holly Goodhead. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the title is. Went completely past me, but not as hard as the notion that a woman can do serious sciences goes past Bond. Yeah, this this is also a line that we have to cover here because it touches on the sexism. A woman? A woman can actually be a scientist. M- must be witchery. 
Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do your credit, Mr. Bond. Good line. <laughs> Bond is continuously interrupting Dr. Goodhead because Roger Morris or Bond is trying to show off how much he knows more than Dr. Goodhead, or equally so. <laughs> yeah, that that is, and he he also does this with extremely smug grin on his face. Every single time he pulls off this stunt in the film. Just with, like with... when he was talking with M at the office and he was like, Orchidea Negra, well done, James. Oh. Yeah, precisely like that. And it to me, it's kind of a highlighted problem in, in Moonraker. But when it comes to Bond and women, we have touched the subject repeatedly on this podcast. Yes. And the notion has been made that these are films of the time. The attitudes are presenting the time period when these films were made. Therefore, it's completely alright. No. It's not necessarily completely alright, but I'm not going to stone the film to death because of the attitudes of the time period. But, but. with Moonraker, I think that the film goes all the way with this problematic element, because in here Bond is even more of a smug prick than he has been in any other previous Bond film. When you compare Bond's sexism, for example, in The in the Spy Who Loved Me, in, in here it's being kind of a turned up to 11, simply by Bond continuously having this smug grin on his face, and otherwise kind of emphasizing the or constantly being emphasizing the problematic nature. And I really don't know who am I supposed to blame for this. Is it, is it Roger Moore who simply fucks up these scenes acting-wise? I, I don't believe that this is Roger Moore's personal attitudes, which we are seeing here, but simply that he tries to give this suave appearance of Bond and it simply comes off wrong, or is it the fault of a director who demands that more should be smiling during these scenes. I think it's just Roger Moore doing his thing without any guidance. Just just me guessing. But Bond he's yeah. he's the worst actor in the world. M- Moore? Yeah. No. Hmm. Why? I'm just asking. <laughs> <laughs> they get to centrifuge. Hollywood head makes the line that come on, like 70 year old can take four cheese. Yeah, well, the trouble is, there's never a 70 year old around when you need one. Okay, he was like 50 years old. What, during the filming? Or, or when yes. you, or, or the moment when you revisited the scene? During the filming, and when I visited this film for the first time, he was about 70 years old. But with, with that kind of out of the way, I I still, in, in defense of the film, I would like to point out that this scene actually is one of the more suspenseful scenes of the film. Because this is one of those moments where Bond actually is in real danger when, when it comes to what happens to him throughout the movie. The problem yeah. kind of is that the danger Bond faces here is not really that obvious to the audience, in, in my opinion. Like, you kind of have to have an understanding of what facing hard G-forces does to body. And what it does, for example, the blood circulation and blood circulation to your brain. 
And if you have a grasp of that, then you can understand why Bond really is in danger here. But if you don't have this knowledge, it kind of starts to simply... Uh, it, it may appear to you that Bond simply is on a roller coaster that's going around way too fast. Yeah, he hits 14 Gs, does it, or approximately something like this, so at this point he should be completely out of the game. However, gets out of the podium and walks out on his own, no problem. And he was getting flashes of the horse's ass, sorry, the painting of the horse's ass. (laughs) (laughs) But it it does show that Bond actually is, is being affected by what happened to him and that he is is hurt. This is also something where I'm crediting Roger Moore's acting, because I think that this moment he pulls off pretty damn well when Bond walks out of the machine and is kind of stumbling and obviously at this point he is being somewhat afraid of what just happened to him. This is a moment where Roger Moore has to act and I think he pulls it very well off when he is coming out of the centrifuge machinery. He looks definitely very messed up. I just kind of wish that he would have escaped the centrifuge through some other means than simply using the Deus Ex Machina here. (laughs) What do you think about uh, the series once again getting a strong woman to play a leading lady and they are put down with sexism? This is a really weird combination. You know, in the face of the actor you can see that this is really pissing her off probably in real life when Bond is shooting these one-liners. It's a weird combo. And in as a result, they have no chemistry, in my opinion. I think it works better with the bimbos. It, it does, but I, I would say part of that problem also is that when it comes to kind of trying to present a strong woman, at least the earlier porn films, we don't really know how to do that. Because there are, there are numerous instances throughout porn film history where Basically, every film tries to give you the good Bond girl, the strong female, and more often than not, they don't re- actually give that woman anything to do. Case in point, the good head character here in Moonraker, who, well, well spoilers, turns out is a CIA super operative. <gasps> and yeah, what? and what does he, what does she actually do in the film? Like mostly, what what she does with Bond when they are both facing the danger, is distract the bad guys with her looks and smiling to them while Bond does some antics and in the very end, well, she hits a man in the back of the head and then once they land Trax's space station, she, she does lead the invading good guy forces and stuff like that. But throughout the most of the film, Goodhead really doesn't do, well, anything. Hmm. Well, this was the third week and the third studio at that moment in Bilenko Studios for the G-Force test machine or the centrifuge. We should give some credit for the massive sets of Ken Adam. These were some of the biggest sets ever put together in France. It was the biggest ever for the space station set for sure at the time. And there was some problems... The French crew and Louis Gilbert started to get friction because of the French Union who said that they can't do so much OT. But they turned into the sets for Saturdays and Sundays after all to do some OT and brought their family even to the set. 
to help out or just marvel at the Ken Adams sets. They are wonderful. And guys, this is the final Ken Adam James Bond film. It's a good way to go out. Much more. Roger Moore. Oh, I had I do have to agree with the set. Guys, let's shoot some pheasants, shall we? Well, why not? Or, or let, let's not. Let, let's completely miss the birds and instead play the cliche where you miss the shot and quote-unquote by accident kill the assassin. Prior to that, of course, James Bond was snooping around in Mr. Drax's safe and got some information there and used the 007, whatever it is, miniature camera. Like in On Her Majesty's Secret Service when taking pictures of the ladies from the wall. And so he makes copies and now we're at the pheasant shooting. During this scene, when Corinne is taken down by the dogs, there's a song called Centrifuge and Corinne put down playing. James Bond arrives to the scene and the trumpet is sounding and playing the brass notes from also Sprach Saratustra. Referencing 2001 A Space Odyssey. Bond shoots, but shoots the baddie, as mentioned. Ha! You missed, Mr. Bond. Did I? Did I? As you said, such good spot. And walks away with a huge grin on his face. Smug bastard. Smug. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really great. Great stuff right there. Bond doesn't like shooting pheasants. But people, yes. It's fine. Well, he doesn't shoot vegetables, which pheasants obviously are. Oh, yeah. That was a joke. Oh. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean, oh, like I really believe that pheasants are vegetables? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also have to have a confirmation here, Kari. What we, what were you aiming at with that O? Oh. Well, aren't they? Just like cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, such good sport, unless you're a pheasant or a bad guy. And uh, basically, then the dogs eat Corinne Dufour. Which, once again, in, in the film's defense, is really haunting scene. It is well-executed scene, actually. It's very creepy I, uh, music. Yes, it's horror-esque, even. It is, and there, I, I would say that there is, since you know mentioned the horror horror esque nature of the scene. I I to me there is a very strong gothic vibe going through the scene with Corinne's dress and that kind of a foggy atmosphere in the forest. There's something going on for sure. It was a scene that gave me the creeps as a kid. No doubt. A great piece of m- music plays there. Yeah, I agree. Well we have all agreed, and then a presidential suite is the next moment when uh, Bond arrives to Venice, checks out the glass shop slash museum, is talking Dr. Goodhead, and then comes next to Dr. Goodhead to note that it, this was made in the 14th century. Dr. Goodhead! I dislike being spied on. Apparently, we, uh, Michael Wilson has some cameo role as a tourist outside of the Venini glass shop and museum in Venice, and then he's at the end of the film, of course, as a technician in the US Navy control room. We'll get to that. Here, Bond doesn't get a date. Surprisingly so. Yeah, 
even lowering his offer for a drink. And she says that I can't immediately think of an excuse, but I'm sure I will. And walks away. Yep. That's something. Well, it is something, and the movie then later on backtracks with that sentiment. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, actually does the backtracking pretty soon after this scene. But no worries, since we're going into the Bondola chase, where Christopher Wood actually wanted to have a motorcycle action scene in the first place, but turned out to be a gondola bondola scene. And nobody would be selling them working gondolas, so they had to make gondolas out of scrap material. They did some initial tests. The gondola was going with 24 kilometers per hour with one motor and was kind of dipping and sinking underwater. (laughs) But they made some model that could go, or they made some gondola that could make it up to 96 kilometers per hour or 60 miles per hour for you who have wrong system in use which turns into hovercraft we have more science fact here yep yeah there there was four or five times that they took this scene where the gondola or bondola comes out of the water and turns into a hovercraft because it would go so that one part of the gondola would fill with air and then it would kind of dip and uh, push Roger Moore out of the gondola four or five times and he had to change suit four or five times until they finally got it right. In the meantime, 40,000 people were eyeing on them and laughing at Roger Moore and much more. I I, I don't know if if they were kind of laughing at Roger Moore taking the dip or were they simply laughing at the whole script taking the dip here at the gondola scene because god damn if this is ain't awful. What? You don't like hovercraft gondolas I, in I, this podcast? I, th- this, this may be my least favorite moment in Moonraker. I, I Basically I hate everything in, in the gondola scene. I, I hate the opening action beat with the Jokey, jokey, knife-throwing assassin in the coffin stuff. That was stupid. I, I hate the fact that Bond's gondola turns into a into a hovercraft because everything turns into a spy equipment simply by Bond having his arse on it. I, I hate <laughs> the even more awful gondola gag that follows the chase. I I I, I hate the bitchin moment. I I hate all the humorous antics that play out when Bond is driving the hovercraft on ground. I, I even hate the moment when the bad guys give up the chase and make the U-turn and the one bad guy falls off the boat. Doesn't this guy serving the beer and uh, landing the beer on the customer's face, doesn't he look like Sir Hillary Prey to you? It's at 4105. I- yeah, I, I know I- exactly the moment you are speaking of. Yes. And now that you mention it, yeah, I, I can see some similarities. Yeah. Anyway, as you mentioned, um, yeah, it's like John Barry also was not eventually very happy with this, having some classical music playing here, and he thought that it was a kind of a mistake to make it as goofy as it is. But there it is. All the goofiness that you can possibly amp into one minute is right there. Can we talk about Dracula? What? <laughs> okay. 
yeah, he's the guy who gets out of the coffin and throws knives at Bond. Oh, yeah. That, it's Dracula. Basically. It is kind of funny, actually. He's about to throw the knife and then just goes back exactly where he was coming from. I'd quite like to know where Drax got that guy from. <laughs> I, I I guess he got it from the same henchman hotline where he calls yeah. later in the film ordering Jaws to appear. Yeah. Oh, if you can get him, of course. Yeah, that one henchman who has failed to kill Bond on all the previous occasions. I would very yeah. much like to have that man in my team. Mm-hmm. It's kind of these just like series of freaks, you know, people with <laughs> metal fat that... teeth and a guy who looks like Dracula and a Japanese asshole who doesn't really speak. Just... A series of freaks yeah. <laughs> is pretty accurate description of the old Bond villains, especially on Roger Moore era. Fear not, here we get to Clash Shop once again. and uh, Here we have the largest amount of breakaway glass used in a glass scene in the history of the film, perhaps even right to, the, to this day. Yeah, the, the amount of damage they made in in the in, in the fight scene to glass products, it, it did break the Guinness World Record. Followed by a laboratory in Venice, where Bond goes and sees the key code being typed, which is one two five eight nine, if I'm not misunderstanding, and it makes this sound. And in case you didn't catch the reference there, fear not, because the film will repeat it twice after this one. <laughs> I, I also also kind of like how Bond is breaking in into a top secret bioweapons lab. And because of this mission, he has changed his shirt to be black. So he's obviously in, in sneaking mode. Oh, yeah. Good point. Observations to your credit, Mr. Henrik. Again, I'm jumping too far ahead, maybe, but does anybody know where the laboratory actually went? Because Bond comes back to that exact location a second time and finds that the laboratory has been re- replaced by this kind of gothic, kind of baroque. Yeah, obviously, scientifically speaking, there were yeah. there were workers around the clock trying to change the architecture just for in time for Bond's arrival. With Frederick Ray. So we don't know where the laboratory went. I I, I would guess that they simply stuff it into the next room. <laughs> Actually, if you look at this place, it seems like the architecture matches up, but they have removed all of this laboratory stuff, stuff from the room, quite simply. Yep, some, and uh, yeah, and unlike us, everybody who is not watching the film at this very moment, it bears to point out that the laboratory is... Extremely big here. It's huge and it has metal plating. It has secured observation rooms. It has high-end technical equipment in it. So even though the architecture does match up with the room which they turn turn the laboratory area into when Bond comes in for the second check, there, there still is so much heavy constructions in the laboratory that like being pointed out by you guys, I would say that it is downright impossible to actually clean all of that away in time before Bond's second inspection. Quite right, so, and uh, looks like the nerve gas is taking effect and killing our 
dear experimentators, upon just killing regular people and not using gloves in the laboratory. Well, they do work for drugs, so they're not really innocent people. They are expendable. They are cooking bioweapons there. That's right. True. Do you notice also when Bond exits the lab, on the upper part of the image there is some blurriness going on. This is some kind of a weird effect done by some old lenses. I I didn't notice that, but I did notice that Bond, who, may I remind every, everyone, is still in his sneaking mode and trying to stay undercover as he's checking out the lab. Bond is touching stuff in the lab and not putting them back in their place after he has finished touching and instead simply chooses to let them lay wherever he just happens to put them down to. Meaning that basically everyone who revisits the lab after Bond has been touching shit can immediately notice that, hey, that shit is not in the space that it was just two seconds ago. Yeah, really goofy, and they break the glass and the nerve gas is all over. And a fight with Chang ensues and the glass is going all over the place. Just the... Whenever I watch this scene, I just... Just the tremendous cost of breaking all this lovely antique Venetian glass. Yeah. It must be millions, millions of pounds or whatever the Italian currency was at the time. But it, it, it is relatively good fight scene still. And I do like that even though it does, to me it does appear a bit like the reason why they are making such of a havoc is simply to actually break the world record. Or set the re- world record on breaking of broken glass equipment in one scene. It still doesn't drag too long. Like the fight still is relatively short. Followed by Bond seeing the Rio de Janeiro boxes. Of course, just an excuse for Bond to go to Rio de Janeiro in the following scenes. But here we have a hilarious finale of the fight where Chang. The instructor Michael G. Wilson, I might add, in Aikido, falls through the window onto a piano, which is a sequence that was supposed to be in The Spy Who Loved Me, or was at least in the novelization, and was now used here in Moonraker, the film. Play it again, Sam. Clearly fake legs, though. Like, really, really fake. Like, not even going for realistic legs. Did you notice that? Plastic legs? Yeah. They look like woman's legs. Okay, well, plastic are woman's legs. They're not trans legs. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess nobody gets any dignity in that scene. Followed by arrival to Dr. Goodhead's hotel, where she's simply taking a moment to look into the scenery from her balcony, followed by Bond doing the Chang arrival. Bah! But turns out that she has nothing to do with this Chang guy, and she is part of the CIA. Has a lot of ridiculous equipment with her. Actually, it's pretty good equipment. And they have sex. Or what is suggested as such. Well, well, they are having cooperation. Well, just like in The Spy Who Loved Me. So, yeah, just like in Spy Who Loved Me. This movie has some obsession with darts. Also, CIA has darts. It's trendy in the spy business. And kissing for no reason. Zero chemistry. This is a joke, okay? Skip, skip, skip. And 007 is taking further Cray and Miles M 
into the laboratory, which is not anymore a laboratory and makes them look like asses. And I kind of have to ask, why the hell did Bond do do this this way? Like, what was Bond hoping to achieve here? Why, why did Bond ask M and the minister there to actually check out the lab? He already had kind of evidence that Drax was in on this. He had the poison gas, which he could have simply sent to Q. Actually, more prominently, why didn't Bond send the gas to Q for test-up in the first place? Yeah, there's a lot of scenes that could have been cut out of this film. We will get to this more prominently later. But Bond has a hankering to go to Rio, and so he goes to have a holiday there. I'm, I'm sorry, to have a mission. Jaws arrives to the airport and some goofy comedy right there. And the scene where the plane arrives to Rio with this Concorde is actually Roger Moore arriving to Rio with the Concorde. Then they parked the plane to some special area. Bond got out of, or, sorry, Roger Moore got out of the plane, got makeup done, got back to the plane, and they filmed the scene where he arrives to Rio and comes out of the plane. Got it? Got it. Good. Moving on. Did you notice how many obvious plugs and advertisements were were in the Rio section of the film? A hell of a lot. Yeah. I, I, I did. I was actually, I was meaning to make the notion in the moment when they are, when they have captured Bond and Goodhead and are driving them around. At least they make some good humoric moments in that. They, they do. Then, then again, also the product placement, especially in Rio, is even kind of obnoxious. It is, it is, yeah. All those shots out of the ambulance, outside of the ambulance, it's terrible. And they, they are constant. That, that is the second part in Rio scene. The product placement is constant. You kind of a, you move one scene to the next, uh, and you see product placement here, product placement there, and it's it almost becomes a game. Like <coughs> notice the scene that does not have product placement in it. Jan, uh, can you put the lights on? Many thanks. Fortunately, we have a production support for the Philly Clap right here. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. So we have a whole technical team working exactly be- around the, the clock. scenes here. Yeah. yeah. And maybe we can get our own researchers. Don't get mm-hmm. your hopes up, because <laughs> we, because we, the, the technical team behind the scenes of the Philly Clap is there simply to make the Carly's experience more enjoyable. Oh, okay. <laughs> we can get researchers, but the the word research misspelled. So. Your technical guy has just turned on the light, okay? Yes, so we can carry on the podcast episode. Is there any barrier to this guy's talent? Not really. Actually, he has provided internet to some episodes and the light now, it seems. What else? Yeah, yeah. also some locations for recording. So he's kind of my production designer at this point. Excellent. Yeah. You are moving up on the world. This podcast is just getting better and better and bigger and better. More. Much more. I'm not finishing that one. (laughs) So, uh, arrival to Rio without kidney stones, which Roger Moore had removed when he arrived to Rio a little bit with the delayed schedule. Moore arrived and um, just a couple of days later we actually get to the cable car shooting with some stunt people as well and uh, 
They had normal sized stuntman for Jaws and a very small guy for Bond. Richard Graydon plays Bond and also is the guy who played the Honor Majesty Secret Service cable car guy. So this guy is an expert on cable cars, I have to say. And they were hanging in the air in 2000 feet or 600 meters. Imagine that when the guy is called to do a stunt where he's hanging from the cable car was supposed to have a safety belt but he didn't have it yet because Louis Gilbert fucked up he was calling to shoot for the when the guy is about to fall from the cable car or is on the edge hanging and he wasn't prepared for it but he pulled it anyway because he didn't want to look like an ass in front of everyone and he almost fell to his death but fortunately he didn't Around his stomach area there was this blue metallic protruding part and that was the, the hardcore part that made it really hard for him to pull back and his stunt friend was trying to pull him back with all his might and they were successful. Once again you really have to hand it to the stunt actors of the film. And if you want to have some memories back to Dominic Othnan Girard-like moments, here Louis Gilbert is so jaw-dropped by the moment when he's actually almost falling to his death that he forgets to call cut. And his assistant finally asks Louis Gilbert to call the actual cut. Say what you will about the film, but but the stunt team of the production really deserves applauses here. Because yeah. some 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 of the stuff that they pull off and some of the risks that they involve themselves in, it's it's almost incomprehensible when you think about it. Maybe you have seen the actual material of the of the clo- more of like close-ups of the stuntman almost falling into his death. The expressions on his face are so much of terror that it's hard to watch. It, it is. It is. And uh, we are at the Sugarloaf Mountains and Jaws is trying to bite the cable of the cable car. <laughs> and uh, apparently it would need 2000 tons of force to actually bite it. So Jaws is quite a special case. This is science fact again. Science fact. Yep. And the favorite film of Tom Franklin in the whole history of cinema, I might add. Well, uh, well um, that was very sarcastic, I think. <laughs> but uh, actually I have to admit that we, we are not yet at this point of the episode but I have an inkling feeling where Tom's love for Moonraker actually comes from hmm. well this movie was actually more enjoyable than I was expecting it to be when I started watching it after a long break I know when I was when I have watched this movie the last time maybe 10 years ago so it was Kind of fun at moments, yeah. Do you think you will feel the same about Tomorrow Never Dies, or will you? I will forever hate that film. <laughs> okay. Just so you know. Well, I guess we'll see. Are we doing that film? No, sadly. I mean, I was so looking forward to seeing this Elliot cover, but we're going to do Die Another Day as the worst film of Pierce Brosnan. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, that's yeah terrible. But the 7-Up is everywhere, and Seiko, and Marlboro, and uh, British Airways, and uh, there's a good quote just before the ambulance scene. Have you broken something? Only my tailor's heart. <laughs> and the bad guy goes through the British Airways sign. I thought that was, that was funny. And it says, 
we'll take care of you or something like this. All right, nobody's laughing, whatever. And uh, <laughs> San Nicolo Monastery, which is the fir- uh, next scene. Shooting took place on September 25th. Use of Balls, M's- you? Bolas. 007. More. Much more. Balls in this film. And uh, Elmer Bernstein's theme from The Magnificent Seven is playing when they arrive to the monastery. There's a lot of unnecessary shots in this scene, I feel. Like, for example, Roger Moore much more opens the door and sees a lot of these um, fighter forces. I suppose it's supposed to be funny because they are monks or something. But yeah, we get to M's office finally and there's this Orchidea Nigra. It's a fictional plant. Thought to be extinct, but rediscovered in Brazil by the river Tapirape. Yeah, I actually went through the trouble of contacting some chemists for this podcast to check out if the chemical description of the plant makes any sense. And I can check out the answers. She said that it looks absolutely ludicrous. She went on and googled it and found a blog related to it. It seems to be at least partly a nerve toxin, but all in all, it seems that the chemical formula doesn't really make sense. <laughs> there is this compound called DS, and nobody really knows what that is, or should it be D and a lowercase s, which would then say that there's a spelling error, but that also doesn't make sense because the D and the lowercase s is a compound that was found in 94, I believe. So, I, I guess the only reason why you truly are lost with the formula is that the fucking know-it-all who is Bond James didn't Bond. have e- enough time in this scene to actually also explain you the formula. Yeah, he just looks at it on a, on a glimpse and says that it's clearly a chemical formula for, for a plant. Yeah, and right after that one, he goes on and corrects Q. Once again, with that smug asshole grin on his face. Like, uh-huh. Exactly. Well, actually. Yeah. That's kind of the love it or hate it part of Roger Moore's appearance as Bond. James Bond. Much more. Roger Moore. That and the dumped look he every now, now so often has on his face. Oh, did he? But we get to Iguazu Falls, where we play the song number seven from the soundtrack. Bond arrives in Rio and Boat Chase, which includes the 007 theme, which is kind of the John Barry version of the James Bond theme. Yeah, but Iguazu Falls, south of Brazil, is where it's based, but it's filmed in Florida. The actual chase, but the falls is in Brazil. Yes, and again, so Jaws survives landing into a tent from, I don't know, 15,000 feet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just go back a little bit. There is a close-up phase of Jaws, particularly just before he falls off the falls. Yeah. That that face is priceless. It's the <laughs> best close-up in cinema history. <laughs> I will give you that one. But again, we come back to... How does Jaws survive falling from a waterfall? He's well, invincible. It, it, it's a well-known science fact that underneath <laughs> the fo- waterfall, there are these huge air pockets that actually are formed from the water falling from a huge height. 
with a lot of speed, so it breaks the water surface. <laughs> and Gagawa creates this space where there is no water upon impact. And in that space, you can find clean and breathable air. Wow. Whoa, thank God we have some laboratory work for this episode so we can carry on. Thank you for dropping that science. Thank you. But uh, speaking of dropping, somebody's dropping for a big bite just after this scene. As we carry on to Jungle Lair. And some of the exteriors are from Guatemala. Just like uh, for a few seconds they filmed some shots from Guatemala. And then we carry on back to France, the Jungle Lair set of Ken Adam. While Pontler to Pyramid track 5 is playing. It's a beautiful track. I love it. It's my favorite from this film, probably. After Flight into Space, which we will get to in this podcast. But uh, this is the moment when the shooting began for the movie, guys. 11th August 1978 at Epine Studios. And we have the rocks of Ken Adam that are made to look more like glass. They look kind of plasticky, I don't know, but... uh, I like the look, and uh, there is the python scene when Bond is fighting against the python much more. And uh, this python scene underwater is filmed in Florida. And they had to actually fight to get the scene shot there because it was too cold for them in the water for the pythons. So they'd have to always swim right next to the pythons who were going towards the shore because they wanted to sunbathe themselves. And didn't really give a shit about the stuntmen. But, so they dropped the stuntmen right next to the pythons. And then they forced themselves next to the pythons. And then the pythons would be moderately interested about the stuntmen. We get to the pyramid in Studio Le Boulogne. Where they shot the control room. And uh, yeah, Ken Adams sets are quite unbelievable. These are so iconic that they were actually recreated for the GoldenEye video game as well. If you have ever played the Aztec level, it's right there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Also further down the pyramid or the Drax compound for the Moonraker launchers, there's a French mining shaft used for Drax space launch scenes. And um, when the rockets launch, they have magnesium flares and projector bulbs and salt used for Moonraker liftoff effect, which works amazingly well. There is something clunky about this scene where more, much more asks from drugs, why did you choose to hijack your own Moonraker in midair? And he just makes the quick notion that I needed it because the other one was faulty. I thought it yeah. was also uh, always kind of a ham-fisted. Since, since the childhood, I thought it was kind of a funny line to just throw it in to clear it for the audience. But it was important, for sure. Well, to me, it always shows the moment when the scriptwriters remembered where the story actually started from. Yeah, like, now we have gone through, I, I don't know, one hour, 30 minutes, and then we get the confirmation on this. Because Trax's whole plan, or, or, or the whole motive behind the shuttle heist, does not actually make that much sense when you stop and think about it. It's been made perfectly clear that, like Stromberg, also Strax is one of the richest men on the planet. And he actually owns both the plans of the Moonraker shuttles and also the production facilities. So when he, when one of the shuttles has 
started to malfunction, he could either try to repair the malfunction or then simply completely build a new shuttle and just, you know, maybe postpone the whole wiping off the entire human race part of his plot for, I, I don't know, a year, two years maybe, what it would take for him to build just one more shuttle. And instead, Drax chooses to go with the course of action that most definitely will raise some eyebrows and call attention to him in person. Good points. So, would it be going into space? So, all it takes to take control of the Moonraker is to beat up the bad guys and uh, go into the control room and take control of the pre-programmed flight into the space station of drugs. Easy as pie. Yeah, of course, because obviously everyone in the secret mountain base fails to actually recognize that one of the two men pilots, male pilots, of that shuttle has all of a sudden had a sudden sex change and has turned himself into a woman. (laughs) Absolutely, and Henrik, what what would you think about these visual effects of the film? (laughs) Because... It's it's pretty amazing, you know, how they pull that off. They would shoot one element to the film, then rewind that film to the original place, then shoot another element, put it into the film. I guess they would have to block the film from the part where the original element was shot to make things even more complicated. And then they would have their two elements, and three and four and five and six, and then it would on go like that. And finally, you have 48 elements in the worst case scenario in one of the space station war scenes. So it's absolutely incredible, the effort and the headache of pulling this off. Not to mention the fact that, or actually to mention the fact right now, that when there would be a Moonraker going from, let's say, from the left part of the frame to the right part of the frame you would manually have to every time clear the stars from the way of the aircraft so that they would not overlap i i do applaud the effort and work that went into the effects i i do think they they are really great there are there are some hiccups like when when they land into the moonraker space station or whatever the space station's name was in that landing shot that you can kind of see that the space shuttle does not make a physical contact with the space station. Right? Like there, there are those those one frame hiccups you can pick up, but they didn't bother me. And I think that that is something that shouldn't be held against the FX team. Something that bothered me more. Much more. Much more. I'm not going to finish it is those moments when the science facts once again show up and for example when they drop the carrier rocket from the shuttle and it falls right down almost like there is a gravity in space oh whoa how did that happen it was shot in outer space as the credits it it was shot in outer space so obviously you know, the film is half a documentary and it does prove you 100% that in space there is gravity. And it's it's a similar type of gravity that we have on Earth. So obviously NASA has been lying to us all these years and all the astronomers have been lying to us all these years simply to, you know, 
to get some of that government funding money. Yes, sir. Yup. I mean, Moonraker exposes the worldwide NASA conspiracy, and I would go as far as make the, <laughs> make the case that it proves you 100% certain that Earth is flat. Wow. That is the wow. film that is Moonraker. Wow. Again, is this the official seen... stance of the Flick Lab? Again, we delivering some groundbreaking science here on the Flick Lab. Wow. Also, these space station scenes, when, when we have weightless scenes, it seems that... <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, at least at the time, it was... <laughs> Hello. 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 Why are you laughing? I have no idea. Stay off drugs. At the time... At that time, it was the scene with most wires going on at the same scene for a weightless scene, which I can easily believe. This was so hard to pull off at 1978. It was the second world record that this film did break. Yeah. And once again, in film's defense, the space station interiors and the space station set, it is astonishing. (laughs) And some of the yeah. the wire work that they end up doing on the station, it's really marvelous. And you can really see that basically every penny of the budget is at play here. And there is some real passion behind the scenes with, with, the, wire, uh, with the wire works and with the set designing. And when the final fight starts and they start, they start to blow up the entire space station... I even feel bad for the production designers who built this mar- marvelous piece of of set decoration and then some jerk-off goes on and starts setting off firebombs all around the set. And shooting the miniature with shotguns. That also. I feel most sorry for the people who were doing the, the multi-exposures or... You'd have like 48 takes for the one reel of film and one mistake and the entire multi-exposure special effect would go to the toilet. And you would have to start from scratch. And even then you would have like 20 takes, out of which like 6 were selected for the final product. So, oh my god, it's so... Uh, the, the talent, the talent that behind the film and the risks that... Many of the behind-the-scenes crew and the stuntmen take throughout the movie, they are actually crazy when you when you th- really think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> the amount of paracetamol you need to make these scenes. It's really fascinating to a point where I would like to go to some kind of a museum to see how they actually do these scenes. I mean, we know it on the paper, but, you know would be fascinating to do it on your own, at least for one shot, and see what it's really like to play with those miniatures and the film and pull it back and make sure that it doesn't get any scratch when you're rewinding it. And uh, Yeah. It would be fun for exactly one scene. Yeah. Like, that, that is the most I would believe that I could I could stand for it. The workload and the stress that you have to go through when you are editing film that way. Wouldn't you say that everything is too convenient at this space station? The first objective of James Bond and Holly Goodhead is to locate a jammer. And they were like, okay, we didn't see anything when we were entering the space station, so let's go this way. And um, there it is. 
extremely convenient, and let's just pull it out of its sockets, and uh, now Earth can see us. Hooray! Yup, it, it, it's turn right and take the stairs down. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jaws finds our heroes of the day. Steel balls are featured in this scene. Bond takes the gravitas of kicking Jaws into his balls, which seem to be made of chromium, I guess. <laughs> and he has balls of steel in more ways than one. I mean, he literally does have balls of steel, but he really does have... He's a ballsy guy, you know? Mm. He survives a 15,000-foot drop, and he still keeps on coming, and coming and coming. Uh, especially coming. With steel balls? Not confirmed in the franchise. Okay. No, I'll stay out of this. Followed by the great line, you appear with the tedious <laughs> inevitability of an unlumped season. I didn't know there were any seasons in space. As far as you're concerned, only winter. So there were 50 globes total to be supposed to be sent to Earth. I think three were sent. Yeah, what a huge failure. I mean, it would have been fun to see Roger Moore much more shooting down like 49 of these globes on his way back to Earth. Steady, steady. But doesn't each cube, each each ball of uh, ball of poison <laughs> kill 10 million? Or 1 million? Uh, maybe, yeah. Even 3 or 4 can still wipe out the entire nation of Finland, you know, the which is what, 4 million? W- w- which is the main objective of Drax, to wipe out Finland. Well, you know, if I would be an extremely rich, crazy person, I too would start my übermensch super race by wiping off Finland. Problem arises that nobody knows where Finland is. So I do. Fail. Oh, I do. but you're a secret agent. I think it's south of Italy, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Close. You got the hemisphere, right? And uh, yeah, we have the song called Space Laser Battle when <laughs> the, the, the jammer has been <laughs> removed and uh, the US Space Forces arrived there. I guess immediately, and um, in like two minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and a space uh, fight ensues, and somehow everybody has decided it. Instead of shooting lasers from your moonraker, the better choice of opportunity is to send all your passengers to the space in open space without any kind of wiring and uh, shoot lasers at the baddies. Yeah, because you don't need those people to actually start your super race, as was the original plan. Don't start with me. I know what's happening here. They are safely at Pinewood Studios. Just (laughs) superimposed on the film. What? Are you making the accusation that the film is lying to you when it claims that it it was filmed in space? Yes. That's that's a quite, quite ballsy statement from you. I have balls. Much more. Than Roger Moore. Much more. G- kind of a mean mean joke to be made about a dead guy who yeah. most likely has been cremated. Oh. <laughs> Was that the ghost of Roger Moore? Is he dead? I think he's dead. <laughs> Oh, Gary, you were there. Oh, he's alive. 
Oh no, I, I think he's dead. I, I, I guess the ghost of Roger Moore got him. And that's what you get, Kyrie, for making jokes on Roger Moore's balls. Yep. So Kyrie is no more. Roger Moore. I, I, I guess it's up to you and me to actually finish this episode. I think I'm. So I'm, who's going to be in charge of the podcast? I think I think you can take over, and I can be your sidekick. Can you not hear me? Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh, <laughs> you can. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yep. We we were hoping that you would be dead yeah. by the ghost of Roger Moore. God. I was plotting my future without you in it. I mean, I was going to take over the podcast. Jesus. Can you explain what happened? I dropped my microphone. <laughs> Sorry, oh. Road. <laughs> Please make better stands in the future. I, I, I think your joke wasn't good enough to, you know, deserve a mic drop. <laughs> the Road mics come with really awful mic stands. Oh, he had to fly. So, Drax is running out from the scene. I'm not sure where he was about to escape. The best course of action would be Moonraker 5, right? But uh, he's running to the direction of the airlock, conveniently for a bond. Yeah, and weren't those shuttles supposed to be, like, two pilot things? So, Mm. can Drax actually fly a Moonraker shuttle on his own, since he's running around solo? On a space station where there is no other ways of escaping the station itself except either in an escape pod or then in a shuttle. Well, Drax created the companies, so maybe he knows everything inside out and is able to do the tasks of two pilots. Maybe. Or, that That's kind of the not. only logic you can apply here. We have to go with that in order to carry on. So the space station is shot with 12 ball shotguns into pieces. I mean, it's exploding in space. <laughs> and, um, and during filming, there were jokes pulled on much more. And uh, Giles with the Martians that were washing the space station windows outside of the space station while filming. Uh, that was kind of a surprise for both of them. The things can y- you can do during a $34 million production in France. I'm sorry. Yes, you have to have some fun too. So, this space station is in pieces and uh, Jaws does not obey Lonsdale anymore. And he helps to circumvent the docking and uh, remove some pipey thingy. And they are free to go from the space station. And uh, there is a scene where Jaws and the girlfriend is drinking champagne. And the first time that Jaws speaks, he says, well, here's to us. Kind of lame. Kind of. And Dr. Goodhead makes the scientific notion that don't worry, they'll make it. It's only 100 miles to Earth, whatever that means. So they'll be perfectly safe. I have no idea how. It's a broken part of a goddamn space station floating in vacuum. But this is science fact. Oh, there's that. You keep forgetting this this important point. <clears throat> From which we get to steady hands of Roger Moore. Steady, 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 steady. And they shoot and all then, the clubs. Yeah, Roger Moore in the final moments, Much with more. the final globe, choosing to use the force to help him target. It must be the heat. 
that you have to change into manual transmission. Steady. It kind of looks like an um, like an arcade game, kind of. Steady. Yeah, just like in in New Hope during the Death Star trench <clears throat> flight sequence. Steady. Use the script. Steady. Space sex. <laughs> Lois Childs said that the space sex felt uncomfortable. And I'm sure it felt uncomfortable in the Buckingham Palace when it was broadcast live. And uh, it's uh, the same ending as in The Spy Who Loved Me. When Frederick Gray once again and M and General Gogol see what is going on with the leading lady and Bond and beyond. And it's the credits. And Moonraker end title by John Barry Hal David Shirley Bass is playing the disco version of this uh, title song. Filmed in location Italy, Brazil, Guatemala, USA and uh, outer space. Except they're not in the outer space. They're on Earth's orbit. Fake news. Oh. It's a catchy phrase, outer space. Fortunately, it's not happening here. Henrik, praise the lords of film podcasts. That's Moonraker. It's finally over, thank God. It's all over. Except there's more. Much more. Roger more. You know, I kind of think the wind has gone out of this joke. Uh, you know, the, there is the high probability of that. So, therefore, we carry on to quick categories. Favorite performance? Drax. Hugo Drax. Yup, most definitely. Michael Lawrence today. Hands down. You keep on launching your dales. I will go with Roger Moore. Much Okay, I will go with Lonsdale. Yeah, he's a French actor, but at the same time, I think that he's too serious for this role and just has zero chemistry with James Bond. So I don't like it. But he has very good lines. Good use of English language. But carries on the tradition of uh, the previous paddy. No chemistry. So favorite scene. I really like the pheasant shooting scene. <laughs> you missed Mr. Bond. Did I? As you said. Such, such good, good spot. spot. I'm on the same ballpark, but a moment later. To meet Corinne's death. You know, I can't just pick one best scene because there are so many scenes in this film that I like. I know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can sympathize because it wasn't easy for me. I was also, when picking the best scene, I was competing with Corinne's death scene and then the stunt scenes of the film. I guess objectively speaking, that's the best scene for me too. Favorite quote? Well, again, you missed Mr. Bond. To die. To die. To die. <laughs> to die. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent delivery, so it's it's an unforgettable, it's um, a cinema history, so I will give it to that quote as well. Did I? It's almost on par with um, the line from Goldfinger. <laughs> you expect me to talk? Yeah. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Yeah, true. Much true. And Henrik? I'm going to stick with more with traditions, and more with the traditional bad guy moments. So to me, it's from tracks, I think Mr. Bond must be cold after his whim. Be sure to place him where he can assure of adequate war. Or the other one before that. You are continuously or deliberately breaking all chances of giving a amusing death for you, Mr. Bond. Something along those lines. Or, welcome to California, Mr. Bond. I like it already. 
If you want to go with the slightly sexist lines. Favorite kill? Mm. It would be when more James Bond kills, kills Drax. Take a giant step for mankind. With his cool horse-ass wristwatch. Desolated Mr. <laughs> Bond. Heartbroken Mr. Drax. When it comes to the kills in this film, to me the problem is that I felt that pretty much all the kills were a bit, uh, kind of a lackluster. In mo- mo- most of the cases, I well, really didn't get that much excitement of the kills. And I, I guess the jokey answer would be go- to go with, for example, with Drugs. Drugs' death at the a- end of the film. But to, to be more honest here, I, I, I did enjoy, and I, I did, did, there was this one kill which I felt that really did work, and that is the moment when Corinne is being fed to the dogs. Much more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking part on this stupid show. <laughs> I did notice that you guys were trying to gaslight me by whispering in the background. Oh. Favorite kill. I suppose it's Drax, but it's still kind of a like cluster. But uh, throwing somebody with the dart in his uh, heart through an airlock into space is still an improvement from much more, from, much more improvement from Stromberg. Much, much more. Random confusing question of the evening would be if you were Drax. Would you target Earth with 50 nerve gas globe balls to create your human master race? Or much more. Uh, would you simply build a colony in Mars since you already have such incredible technology to be able to build a huge space station and launch it without anyone noticing it? Your thoughts? Oh, well, killing the Earth's population with the, um, the 50 plant-ridden cubes seems like an awful lot of effort. Yeah. You have to go to the trouble of going to the Amazon rainforest and collecting the orchids and <laughs> extracting the poisonous juice. And building a space station so that nobody would notice. Mm. So I'd probably just go to Mars. Yeah. Henrik? I, uh, I would make the colony, but right after making the colony, I would use Earth's, Earth's population to kill off the colony and then use the nerve gas to kill off Earth's population at my colony. Did anyone actually figure out why Drax had to make this space station to pull off his task? Wouldn't he just be just as well able to <laughs> launch these globes from Earth? I, I guess he made the space station simply because he was able to build a giant uh, space station without anybody noticing. Yeah. First image that comes to mind. Bond pushing Drax into space. Same. Hmm. <clears throat> Probably Bond in Venice. Mm, but where exactly? In the Venetian Glass Museum. Or mm. shop, or, or whatever it is. Mm. Which image best exemplifies Moonraker? Drax drinking tea. Afternoon tea. Steady. Joe's <laughs> hitting the house with a cable card. Guys, you are pulling my my thinking all over the place. Now I have to reset. Let me see. I think it's just generally Dr. Holly Goodhead and uh, James Bond, much more, Roger Moore, as approaching the space station. When it's being revealed with one light source, I might add, I have no idea how you 
do that revealing of the space station with one light source like that, but they did. What took you out? Hmm. Probably the the scene in space, I think. The goddamn gondola scene. Oh, that was so boring already. The slow space, the sluggish soundtrack, the traveling everywhere without no reason, and I don't know why they had to change the you know operations to Rio de Janeiro just because they want to travel. I know, but eh, so everything in Rio de Janeiro just kind of bores me. What pulled you in? Mm. Again, I really loved Drax. Mm. Just everything about because he's kind of got this Nazi mentality going on, which I find kind of interesting. Where he wants to breed the best of the world and destroy the the weak or what he perceives as weak. Uh, nah, he he just got that from Stormberg. Afternoon tea. And he's very sophisticated. He he plays the, he plays Chopin, you know. Yeah. Just no. <laughs> He only <laughs> pretends to play Chopin. Or, or, or he has, uh, you know, ripped this space-time continuum and he's actually playing it, but he's playing it out of sync. He, he's, he's playing it in the future, but before his past self can actually touch the keys. Michael Lonsdale, who is still alive, born in the early 30s. Wow. Yeah. Mm. What pulled me in? Drax's sexiness, undoubtedly. This sort of sacrilege, what would you change in the film? I I guess I would try to make an original script. <laughs> Ooh. I would try to pull it off as a more grounded detective thriller based specifically on Ian Fleming's original. And Tom? Hello. 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 How are you? Extremely grounded. What would you change in this film? <laughs> Hmm. It's a tough one because I really like this film. <clears throat> I think that these scenes in space could have been made more interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. At this point in the film, I kind of my attention started to drift a little. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as in the spy. So they basically learned nothing. At least they kept the fight scenes or the war scene in the space station shorter, but it's also the same problem in this film. That's where the attention is starting to drop off, at least. But, guys, you really know you're watching Moonraker when... <laughs> I, well, I love this one. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Still here. Good. You really know you're watching Moonraker when... When you endeavor to shoot a pheasant, but you end up shooting the guy who's watching you shooting the pheasant. When you are being dazzled by the scientific accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> you really know you're watching Moonraker when... You're watching Star Wars, but it's just a space station that is floating in the Earth's orbit. Three adjectives to describe the film. Mm. Mm. Sassy, sexy, seductive. Slow, spacious. Shit. Ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To me, the first one is cocksure, because... And this also, unfortunately, yet again ties into Broccoli's infamous statement. But the film often is so sure of itself and so sure that it can just, you know, pull this stuff off and make whatever it wants without anybody calling it off to a point where it often starts to be my second adjective, mistaken, 
to a point that it becomes downright and my third adjective retarded. Which is why two years later they would release a film that was way more grounded. At least they're playing it safe. At least they're playing it smart. After this blockbuster they need to get their legs firmly on the ground in For Your Eyes Only. Where you kinda can, can see that even though this made the busload of money in theaters, it still got pretty badly written by the critics. And in For Your Eyes Only, you, in my opinion, you kind of can see them actually trying to course correct. Pretty much like in a, in a panic mode, because it does complete 180. For Your Eyes Only. Did you look at your watch? No, I did not. Mm. I did. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. To, to me, the breaking point was the gondolas. Oh god, yeah, that's that's that, that's too much, too much to bear. Would you recommend Moonraker? Yes, I would. It's an iconic film. Why? Because it's iconic. Why? Be- because it just is. Because why? Every- because everything just interlocks so perfectly. Just the flow, the locations, the talented actors and actresses. But it's so ham-fisted. Tom, everything is just forced on your face. We go to Rio de Janeiro because... Well, tell, you... tell that to Albert Broccoli. <laughs> but <it's>, it, <laughs> is, it is so ham-fisted, Tom. We go to Rio de Janeiro because, I don't know, Hugo Drax just decides that we are going to change our operations now to Rio de Janeiro. It's ridiculous. And we have Jaws, who becomes a good guy and kind of a comedic relief. And we go to outer... No, we go to orbit of space. And? I, I, yes, but wait, 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 wait. On Her Majesty's Secret Service was even more ridiculous than that. What? That's one of the more grounded films. Grounded? Mm-hmm. It's a bag of shit. <laughs> Based on? <laughs> I'm going to forever going to be well, like really mad at you guys because that that is the one of the best films in the franchise whatever you No, say. it's not yes it is <laughs> like, you like, have... it's better than moonraker but it's most definitely not what? one of the best films in the franchise for the love of god guys you have to respect you know, i don't even consider <laughs> it to be a bond film you have to because it is one of the best films in the franchise you have to look Beyond what you see, it's an art piece. You don't have to get so. I I know that in this podcast we always go deep and deep into the science and how this would be possible, but it's not about that. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is about uh, you know the experience. You have to look through the ridiculous and just enjoy it. It's an action adventure. It's not about you know, cracking down why this is happening. It's about enjoying uh, the cinematography, the locations, the... I, I, I can agree with you on the fact that, uh, on the notion that on Her Majesty's Secret Service is not about trying to crack down why this is happening. Because even after repeated viewings of the film, I still am wondering why in God's name is the film happening. You are being way too severe for the film <laughs> you're clinging on to these points that don't matter you have to enjoy it just let it go henrik let it go enjoy 
but I since you raised the point that you kind of simply have have to enjoy the craziness and you just have to enjoy the ride where the film takes you. I'm I'm hazarding the guess that that is precisely why Tom likes Moonraker, likes this film, mm. because I to, to me it does not appear like Tom is trying to deny the faults in the film or the illogicalities that this film has. So in, in that sense, I to me the situation reads like that Tom does acknowledge basically the faults of the film, but he still enjoys he enjoys the experience. <laughs> It's like he, it's like riding a huge roller coaster. Really, you just sit down, strapping, and just just hang on and just enjoy the experience, man. Okay, here it comes, guys. I would not recommend Moonraker. I love the Bond franchise, but this is one of the worst entries in the franchise, and let me tell you why. No, it's not. Technically speaking, it's one of the worst entries. I don't know what happened in this goddamn godforsaken French studios, but the audio throughout the film is so terrible. It sounds like some mediocre 70s soft porn film was like being made here. Uh, listen to the audio, like the like the overdub, the ADR. It's terrible, and you compare it to Spy Who Loved Me or even For Your Eyes Only. There's a night and day difference. I was actually hoping when I got the Blu-ray release of this, or even the DVD special special edition of this, or Ultimate Edition, whatever the case is, well, fuck these names, that I would get better audio. But it's basically the same audio that I heard from the VHS. It's really muffled, it's very soft, it's very unclear. Second of all, the cinematography is not quite up to par of The Spy Who Loved Me here. And uh, third of all, the costume design is terrible compared to The Spy Who Loved Me, like really noticeably terrible. You watch The Spy Who Loved Me and you see the suits that people are wearing. They fit the people that are wearing them exactly. But here, okay... I think they're more loose, they are less colorful, all the locations are less colorful, even though we're traveling all around the world. That's about the technical aspects, guys. But the Moonraker itself is ridiculous. And even if I were to just enjoy it as it is... The sexism, the performances, the ridiculous changes of locations, just like that with the snap of a finger. The main baddie having no chemistry with the main protagonist. And the leading lady having zero chemistry with Bond. And uh, everything being too convenient, especially uh, when it comes to everything related to space station. I just... Uh, it's just... It's just too boring. I, I like the, maybe the first hour of the film, kinda, but even the sluggish soundtrack brings it down. No recommendation from me. That was quite heavy. Me, on my end, I also have to take the no recommendation. Why? Out. Yeah, unfortunately. I also feel that this is, this is not necessarily the worst film in the franchise, but this is, to me, this is also pretty subpar entry in Bond films. My opinion is not so much based on technical aspects as it's with with Curry, and it's it's also not because of the sexism. 
I can still kind of look past that, even though I I do point it out. But I I do have to agree with Gary with with the film being ridiculous. And more than that, to me, it's it's that I just don't like the story and the fact that to me the story is extremely rehashed from from the spy who loved me. I do get Tom's point, and I do understand that, and I. I feel that I understand why Tom likes this film, and I'm not trying to take the movie away from anyone. Like, anyone who likes this, Tom likes this, you know, go ahead. I, I'm not trying to counter-argue with you on that one, and I'm not trying to say that you are wrong liking Moonraker. And I can understand the roller coaster attitude and the, the feeling of roller coaster that you get from this film. I just don't get the same feeling. And because of that, you know, I I can't recommend Moonraker. Tom, how can you attack our wrong opinions from your perspective? Well, you know, I'm never going to change your opinion. All I can say is the films you like are just worse than Moonraker. (laughs) And that's not a very intelligent critique, but... (laughs) Yeah, this is, uh, I guess it goes into the tastes category very much here what you're going to do if you're going to like this film or not i i understand it's mary's is technically fantastic and it's kind of fun to go to space but it's too ridiculous and convenient for me i'm the guy who enjoys more of the films at least nowadays i mean i guess i as a kid i enjoyed mostly more much more but now i enjoy flicks like the living daylights and license to kill and God forbid, like even maybe Quantum of Solace, but all those kind of a more hard-edged James Bond that you see. Yeah, I guess it's up to everyone's opinions. It kind of bears to remember that we are still talking about a form of art. But we're still... for art pieces. Still, we're talking about a film that basically rehashes everything that The Spy Who Loved Me did. Except in space. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to bust your bubbles no my bubble is firmly unpopped you will never burst my bubble when it comes to moonraker well in that case you can find us on facebook instagram and youtube and twitter and please do not forget to join our international cinema challenge that is running throughout 2019 in january 2020 we will be gladly chatting with you our dear listener about your experience of watching all these 20 films. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> wow. And also, <laughs> we'll be running this James Bond marathon. Like, we will be watching one James Bond film per month every last Thursday of the month. So please join us also. For more. <laughs> this time, not so much more, because we'll be switching Thank. God, to well, not really. I, I'm sorry, I forgot. We have still one more, much more Connery to go. Yep, we're ca- ca- kind of a changing to a lesser here. I was already waiting for Dalton, but never say never again. The Thunderball rehash is next in our lineup of Bond. Yeah, it, it's it's two rehashes back to back. <laughs> this marathon is getting really fun to do. <laughs> And uh, when it comes to our next film of the next week, we're going to look at a French film from the French island of Martinique in the Caribbean. It's a semi-autobiographical story of black people 
working with near-slavery wages in sugarcane plantations in the 1930s Martinique, and one kid's attempt to get off this treacherous future with education. We will actually have a guest from Martinique who owns a sugarcane plantation. Yeah, really. <laughs> it, it doesn't get more off the beaten path cinema than this. <laughs> so, so um, how many listeners do we have now? Or, or you guys have? I'm still a guest, you know. 51,000. Just counted. 51,000? Yes. I don't believe that. Yeah, me neither. This is all about science, so don't start. Gary is using some goddamn broccoli facts there. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, and uh, see you next week. <laughs> Until then, goodbye.